Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. These are conversations at our intersections and an opportunity for us to hear firsthand from others in our community how they have learned and are learning to thrive. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so lets others like us hear the voices amplified here. Alexander Leon is a rising star in the community, and his new YouTube channel is a godsend. His searing yet bubbly takes on LGBTQ life are a welcome counter to the often toxic conversations we hear in the media, and he is such a fabulous example of what happens when we lean into ourselves. Today, we explore how he navigates his mixed-race identity, what he feels is his role as a mediator between cultures, ideas, and beliefs, and how he'd like the conversation around the mental health crisis in our community to change. Importantly, he calls us to consider how we create space for different approaches to a common problem, because what we may consider divergent approaches to our activism are perhaps more complementary than we think. As you do when you're chatting with friends, our conversation takes a few tangents, including into a discussion about Louis de Bernier's Magical Realism trilogy and the celebration of Mestizos in Colombia. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Alexander Leon. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure, Josh. I mean, I feel like I have rolled in with my coconut latte looking a bit bougie, but... Is it a coconut latte? It is a coconut latte, and uh, we're in a very professional setup. I'm extremely impressed. Thank you. She got money. She got money. No, she didn't have money, but she has support of a Uh, great podcasting platform called Acast. Oh, that's lovely. So I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm more grateful that you're here, though. Well, I'm really grateful to be here. I mean, we've been talking about it for ages, so So it's nice to actually sit and have our chat and I'm actually very excited for our conversation for two reasons first of all because I love you but secondly because I know we disagree on things we do and I think that's a good thing right <laughs> it's gonna be good we do yeah um I want to start by saying how absolutely delighted I am that you have a YouTube channel thank you I just feel like I, I sent you this voice note the other day saying I think Alex Leon having a YouTube channel is one of the best developments in YouTube <laughs> history. Uh, let's see what the white people think. I mean, I'm <laughs> also who cares what they think. But yeah, yeah, no, I'm, um, I'm, I'm really happy that I've finally done it. I'm not going to lie; it's been a long time coming, and all of my friends who've known me for years have been saying, "You've been saying you'll do this for mm. a while." But I think it does. One of the reasons that I wanted to do the YouTube channel was because I felt like I wasn't seeing a version of myself on YouTube, and there's lots of queer content on YouTube. YouTube um, by people of color, but it's very rarely about being a person. It's very rarely self-referential, if that makes right, sense. Yeah. So often it's it's kind of representation. Someone's talking about their life, but they're not necessarily talking about the issues. Uh, and I searched and I searched and I searched and I got to the point where I thought, I just, maybe I need to be the person who does this. Mm. And it's taken a lot to get to that point, but I'm really... Um, I'm extremely um, buoyed by people's support because I genuinely didn't think that you know, you put things out into the world and you don't you don't know how people are going to respond. And totally. so it's been enormously gratifying that people are watching it um, and sharing it. It's lovely. And not just watching it and sharing it. I mean, there has been a quite an emphatic response to... Well, I'm to, trying to be humble to, here, Josh. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. No, there has been an emphatic response. I think it speaks to people because... So many of us um, end up discussing these issues with friends of ours, whether they be white or whether they be people of color. And it's often in the context of an argument mm-hmm. or 
uh, a conversation which is a bit tense yeah. or, um, you know, it's not often in a kind of sharing, in a, share, a way that's kind of sharing and talking openly um, and with a bit of humor and with a bit of a laugh. And so I think possibly that's why people are connecting with it because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of inject some humor and, and um, create a conversation which is not uh, intimidating for people who don't necessarily understand the issues fully, but it's not for white people, so to speak. No. Right? It's for us, yes. by us, mm-hmm. and um, white people are super invited and super welcome to join the conversation. Um, and sometimes they are kind of being addressed, but I think that's why people uh, are connecting with it because it's it's for us and it's by us and it's about us and there's just not enough of that mm, yet. Totally. Yeah. And I think as well, I talk about this a lot, but that I actually think that so often when we write or create as people of color, we do it actually for each other mm. to help give each other the language. Because I think particularly your video around sexual racism, which I think was a bold step for a first video. Thank you. I think you were just like, you know what? I'm going to step into the space. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm yeah. going to do it bad. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kicking the nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that you're helping us make sense mm. of sexual racism mm. for ourselves, mm. right? For those of us who don't yet have the language, yeah, or have quite a gra- we know what sexual racism is. We know why we why we feel offended, yeah. but we not we might not necessarily have the language to describe to someone else why it's not okay. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think that's it's important to have the language because I think that we find ourselves often on the receiving end of this horrific behavior, and we don't always. We don't always have the words or the faculty, actually, to respond in a way which is going to be the most effective. Mm. Sometimes we lash out or sometimes we internalize um, that sort of those, you know, the horrific language that we come across and we somehow allow it to be a reflection of ourselves. So I think there's something to be said for banding together and trying to help each other navigate these experiences in a way which is friendly um, and hopefully not patronizing and kind of saying we're all in this together this is how I see things, and you might see these things in the same way. Um, and let's help each other out, mm. you know? What are your hopes for the YouTube channel? I don't know yet, frankly. Um, I, I want to continue centering conversations around queer people of color, because that was always my intention. I'm not, I don't want, to, I kind of know what I don't want, and that's kind of where I'm leading at the moment. So I, I know that I don't want a, a YouTube channel about my life and my personality and the things that I do every day, I think so many YouTubers out there, and this is, this is not to um, criticize them at all, it's just not what I want to do. You know, their, their, their videos are about um, the things that they do every day, or like, oh, I did this today, or here's a story about when I did this, and I guess I, I like sharing personal experiences. I think personal experiences are really um, fundamental to helping us understand that we have a shared humanity, but I don't want every video to be about my personal experiences. I want my videos to be a chance to discuss the issues that affect all of us mm. with people um, who aren't me. You know, I'm not going to do a video on being a trans woman of color. I'm not a trans woman of color. Right, right. But um, I'm super open to bringing in a trans woman of color to talk about her experiences and then figuring out how we can turn that into a bigger narrative around how we can tr- how you know people of color should be treated more generally or how trans uh, trans identities intersect with racial or ethnic identities. Mm, mm. So I think I'm I'm steering more towards kind of a I guess kind of educational, I don't like that word, but but talking about um, talking about the issues um, and steering away from, you know, here's five things that you didn't know about me kind of yeah. content. Um, <laughs> and uh, so in, in some ways keeping it quite objective. Which yeah. Is really- and I also, I, I have to say, although I think YouTube is a wonderful platform, I didn't go into this wanting to become a YouTuber and I still don't want to become a YouTuber. Oh, right? I'll take that out of your bio then, shall I? <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's not, um, it's not that I'm against YouTube at all. I guess for me, uh, YouTube is the medium through which I'm choosing to express myself. Mm. So, you know, I write a lot and I speak a lot and I enjoy writing a lot and I enjoy speaking a lot. I especially enjoy getting paid to speak. So <laughs> shout out to anyone who wants to pay me. It's great. Um, but I I love YouTube because I've, I've realized that I'm just the kind of person that I like talking. I like talking to people and I like talking about the things that I care about. And to me, it's much more natural to to sit and talk for ages mm, than it totally. is to write, mm. um, which is why I'm so excited about this, right? Because I love talking so much because I can't shut up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I'm I choosing YouTube as my as my, my medium. 
but I'm not so focused at the moment on, you know, the regularity of my content or the amount of uh, followers I have, so to speak. It's just, it's just like writing an article. It's just that it's a video and there's some jokes in there and there's a fun little animation. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So let's get into the meat. Let's get into the meat, darling. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian, but I'll uh, make an exception. Yeah, so, it's, well, the, so I, I've, I've seen your video mm. um, for Mixed Race Faces, mm. and I think I'm recording um, mine for them. Are on you? The 9th of March they or something. They are so lovely. They're yeah. such a, we should just give them a shout out because honestly, Mixed Race Faces are such an important platform for sharing the lives and the stories, which are extremely diverse. Totally. I actually thought, sorry to interrupt, I, when they sent me the form and I filled it in and I sent it. And once I sent it, I was like, they're not going to ask me to do it. Why? <laughs> Why? Because I felt like my ideas of mix, of what it means to be mixed race were perhaps didn't seem to be in line with some of the other views like yours, for but example. But that's fine. That's, that's, Part of the diversity mine, of... Yeah, I thought they were, they, they were going to think that mine were quite negative. <laughs> but it's okay if they're negative. Maybe. Well, what are your views not negative. race? Let's start with your views on okay. being mixed race. Okay. So I think for me, I mean, let me preface this by saying, and I think that this is something that mixed race faces have gotten right as well, that being mixed race is an enormously diverse experience in and of itself. Mm. So every single person... Like, mixed race is basically a catch-all term for all of the in-betweeners, right? Um, and so it's... I know so many mixed race people, and though we have lots in common, we have actually lots that sets us apart. Um, and so when I speak about being mixed race, I speak from my own experience. I've always felt that it was a kind of a weird in-between place that didn't quite feel, I never quite felt like I was one, and I never quite felt like I was the other. And I felt, I, I found that to be an enormously isolating experience growing up because I felt that I didn't really have the sense of belonging that I so desperately wanted when it came to my ethnic or kind of racial identity because I wasn't white enough for the white kids and I wasn't brown or black enough for the brown and black kids. And so for me, it was a very affecting experience. Um, and I think part of becoming older and coming into my own has been, I guess, accepting my reality and accepting my truth and actually finding some beauty in that in-between and settling into that in-between and um, and actually really filling out that space and being like, you know what, I am probably not going to be either. Or I've make, made the conscious decision personally not to identify with one over the other. I'm, 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 I'm filling out this space in between and I'm calling myself mixed race. And I'm looking to other people who are mixed and saying, I think that we actually have a lot in common and a lot that unites us. And why not celebrate that? You know, I mm. think being mixed race is really unique in the sense that you can celebrate um, both halves of your whole as well as the whole itself, mm. right? So I can celebrate my Sri Lankan father and I can celebrate my Sri Lankan culture and, and the language and the food and all the things that I love about it. And I can also celebrate my my mum, who's from rural England. She's from, I don't know, Norwich or somewhere that I've never been. Um, <laughs> my mum no, no, is I'm not from Norwich. Really? Yeah. We're probably related, There Josh. we go. We're probably related. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and I can celebrate the, I mean, it's not a great time to be celebrating the UK in terms of our political climate, but I no. can celebrate the UK and the language and the culture and the people and the history. And, you know, there are things to celebrate there as well. So for me, it's always been, I guess I've gotten to a point now where I'm leaning into my mixed raceness, if that makes sense. And I actually think that there is a kind of, I don't want to say radicalness, but there is something new about this. I think that um, mixed race people aren't necessarily taught to feel proud of being mixed race. They're taught by white people that it's beautiful and that it's exotic and that it's different. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that many of us internalize that in a positive way. I think if anything, most of us internalize that in a in a negative way because mm -hmm. it's like you're different and you're, you're interesting. Othered, you're yeah. othered. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think all I'm trying to do in talking about my experience of being mixed race is encourage people to... Um, to own a part of themselves that they might not necessarily have um, felt comfortable owning. And I, I enormously appreciate that not everyone is in the position to do that. Some people feel very strongly that they connect with one part of their identity more than the other. And I think that sometimes we do that also because we want to feel that sense of belonging and because we genuinely do identify with one, one more over the other. I'm very lucky as well to have 
parents who very actively love each other and who are together and who and so I, 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 I kind of take this odd sort of philosophical approach where I think, oh, I'm kind of the, I'm a symbol of their love and of their unity. And they're extremely different from one another. Mm. They look different. Mm. They act different. They sound different. They speak different languages. But because I'm lucky enough to have that kind of familial foundation, I can, I can take this approach where I'm saying, you know, I'm, I'm a product of something that's actually really, really beautiful. Mm. Uh, I'm a product of love. I think that's a really beautiful sentiment. I think it's the one that I think is perhaps most important mm. is that it is, uh, we are a result of love, right? Just like any child is though, yeah. right? So it's not as, it's also not a, an experience that is unique no, of course. to mixed raceness. See, I've always used the term mixed race mm. as a defense against blackness. Mm. To separate myself from blackness, to say I am not that, mm. because I've ne- I had until recently hadn't felt any title to blackness, mm. and I also think it might be the type of mix. Yeah, I totally agree. Right, because there mine is white, Brit- white British, and African American, mm. and there is a clear conflict between those two identities, mm. those mm. two routes, mm. um, and so because I've always used mixed race to distance myself from blackness I feel really I don't like the term Mm. and I feel like for me it's always it's always allowed me to shield myself Mm. or to separate myself from Mm. other people yeah it's 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 been an a tool for isolation I think and I also just really really disagree that mixed race people are somehow a salve for racial disagreements. I don't think that in our in our experience or in our bodies lies the solution that humanity is looking for mm. to overcome yeah. these racial differences or these racialized lives. Mm. I just and I think to have that expectation put upon the shoulders of mixed race people is is rather unfair. Yeah, no, I I don't think I disagree at all. I think for me, I've always felt like I in my personal experience have um, had to because of my my family and my upbringing act as a bridge between two cultures, and so I found that that skill has developed itself as I as I've become an adult into I think a kind of compassion or an empathy, like a kind of ability to see two people who have different points of view and different worldviews, and kind of try to maybe act as a mediator or a bridge, right? And I think that but don't I don't you know feel that you... such a sense of responsibility. A sensitive responsibility? No, like such a, an immense sense of responsibility. Oh, no, I think that um, I don't see it as a responsibility. I see it as something that I enjoy doing. So right. I don't think that anyone should feel responsible as a mixed race person to have to do anything, right? right? And yeah, I'm sure yeah. you agree. Yeah, totally. I find, though, that, that for me, I I I have um, reflected a lot upon my upbringing and my life, and I've realized that because of my particular upbringing, I was often kind of acting as a mediator between two cultures. And so now in the work that I do uh, and in the people that I meet, I kind of find myself um, naturally um, in between two people and trying to mediate between different people. And I found that a lot of the time that uh, that can be kind of people who are disagreeing on on ethnic or racial lines. It might Mm. not always necessarily be consciously, but they're coming from different kind of cultural perspectives or viewpoints. And I find myself kind of trying to act uh, as a sort of an in-betweener or as as a diplomat. But I don't necessarily um, feel... I mean, I I know that I have some mixed-race friends who feel the same. I don't know that that's an entirely um, shared perspective. I think it's fair to say that you probably don't share that perspective. I'm not sure. No, I don't. I, yeah. I don't have the patience for whiteness at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, my, it, my threshold is has fair. been whittled down. But so fair. So yeah, fair. and I think I think it's been a proximity to whiteness that has. This is going to sound quite harsh. Mm. It has been a proximity to whiteness that has been so poisonous in my life mm. because there has been no counter to that yeah. until recently. Right? Yeah. And when I say recently, I mean in the last five years. Yeah. So, you know, my coming into my blackness, I remember I had a conversation with my mom, who is a white woman, who is mm. on this journey with me, yeah. both on the LGBTQ front. You know, she's reading about trans issues and non-binary people, and she's asking me questions, but also on the black issue, right. uh, black identity, and, and where those two intersect, she's mm. quite interested in. And so when I said that I had always used her as a defense for not identifying as black, she said, I'm really glad you identify as black. 
I think it's very important mm. for you. Um, and I fully support that. Mm. And because I've had the permission almost to do that, both from within myself and mm. because from this woman, I've always been scared not to claim, as it were, right? How mm. can I deny my mother? Mm. Um, it's very profound. It's, it's given me an... I'm also allowed with that permission to say, no, figure it out yourself. I don't have time for this because mm. I do not want to be the mediator between mm. you and, yeah. your, and your lack of... And that's absolutely your prerogative as well, right? Mm. I think it also comes down, it's the same thing, right? When we're talking about um, people of color in general should not feel, it's not our responsibility to educate people who don't get it on the issues that um, that we face every day. Mm. It's not our responsibility. And I don't think that um, many people disagree with that. I certainly don't. But I think sometimes what I feel is that I do step into that role a lot. I feel comfortable in that role. And mm. I actually enjoy that role because it makes me feel like I'm helping in the way that I can help. Um, and Yeah. Uh, which and I think is a privileged thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I think I've also, I think it also intersects funnily enough with my mental health and having gone through, you know, really dark periods of depression and anxiety and being enormously privileged to be able to afford therapy and really put myself first and really unravel some of the things that I think about myself or some of the things that I internalize as a child or as an adolescent. And I've gotten to the point now where I... I'm just, I'm, I am owning my experience and I'm owning the person that I am. And I think um, being mixed race is a really personal thing, right? We yeah. don't have mm. a culture, we don't have cultural touch points to draw upon where we're like, oh no, this is how we're supposed yeah, to be, yeah, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I think actually this, this is conversation, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think I think what I'm trying to do a little bit in, t in the work and the things that I talk about is to create that for the people who want it or sure. who need it. And I think what you're saying also, but not saying explicitly, mm. is that this this role that you enjoy playing, mm. i.e. as mediator or as a, a, a bridge between conversations and, mm. and perspectives, is one that you have found aligns with your values yeah. inside, which is distinct from any expectations Absolutely. that might have previously been placed on you or that yeah. you felt kind of had been placed on you. Is that I right? never felt that I needed to be this way. I right. felt deeply that I want to be this way because I enjoy it. And I think that at the same time, there are people who will say, you shouldn't be doing this, and this is not how you should be putting your efforts, and this is not how you should be spending your time. I completely understand their perspective, and I don't disagree with that. But I think, you know, we are all doing our part towards trying to help mm, and trying totally. to make this better for everyone. I think some people's part is playing mediator. Some people's part is focusing on our community uh, outside of white people, outside of the context of white people and building that community and creating more unity within our community. I mean, the black community aside, if you're talking about people of color, broadly speaking, we're not united. I mean, there's no. anti-blackness in Asian communities and there's no. anti-blackness in Middle Eastern communities. We need to focus on ensuring, much like the LGBT community is doing, that we uh, are more than just a kind of uh, not white people group and that we actually understand each other's issues and that we care about each other's issues and that we're looking after each other. Totally. And I think the people that are doing that work are, are bloody great. You know yeah. what I mean? And I support that work and I donate to that work. Um, and I do do some of that work actually. Yeah. But I'm also really passionate about um, about attacking things from different angles at the same time. And so yeah. I feel like I, I have found myself... Um, better placed, although I do do both, you know, better placed acting kind of as mediator. And to be honest, it's exhausting. And I don't do it 100% of the time. Mm. It's hard work. It's no harder or easier than building unity within our community, but it is hard work. Um, and I sometimes I feel like it's a shame that we don't, um, as, as, as activists and as people pushing for equality, essentially, that we don't appreciate that um, we have different ways of doing things. I don't... Um, uh, I don't criticize or argue with people who are trying to to build spaces and platforms for our community to thrive. I think it's a wonderful thing. But I do think sometimes that I'm on the receiving end of criticism for wanting to bridge the divide or wanting to bridge yeah. the gap. And um, I understand why people feel that way and I don't resent it. But I do sometimes feel upset by it because I feel like the work that I do, it's not for white people. Sometimes it seems like it's for white people. But it's yeah, not. I think one of the criticisms I messaged you was like, it seems reductive. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. No, I remember that like, very fine. well. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's my <laughs> weekly text from Josh on how I'm reductive. Uh, <laughs> I do think, though, that 
this conversation and, and these dialogues are extremely important and I don't get enough chances to talk to people whose experience uh, or perspective on being mixed race or on equality for people of color or on anti-blackness or on proximity to whiteness is different to mine. And I think in having these conversations, we we, we develop a more comprehensive understanding of the Definitely. fact that we are diverse. We right. are a diverse community and we don't all feel the same. And that's okay yeah. because there are people outside of this room and outside of this context who think that we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's important that we make it clear between us that we don't and uh, and present a diversified front to the people who don't have any clue, you know, about our issues. Yeah, and I show them being, that there are, there are different ways of attacking the same, the same problem. I think being around you and being uh, friends with you has helped me see that there is more than one approach. Because I think one of the conversations we had was about um, working within all-white organizations. Oh, yeah, I remember this, yeah. Yeah, we were sitting at Cafe Route. No, no, no. You got it wrong, Josh. If you're going to bring this story, it was like we went to Kevin out and then we went to that really bougie wine bar that you brought me to. And I was like, where's this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah, remember that? Right. And I was like, Untitled, I where does called. Josh go for, <laughs> <laughs> for a glass of wine? Yeah, Japanese wine bar. Yeah, I had like Boston, a box yeah. wine on the sofa with a piece of pizza in my mouth. Kind of guy. And all of a sudden, well, I, I think was, that we did go home, go to mine after that we and have did. a share of all of Chardonnay. Also, this is probably not going to be in the podcast, but I've since read those three De books. Oh, of course. They we are so wonderful. They are such a good trilogy. Uh, did you, I, have you read all three of them? Because you were three, concerned I read them on holiday. That you wouldn't. I finished oh. them on holiday. Yeah. What did you think? I absolutely love them. I absolutely love them, and here's why. <laughs> yeah. Because there was it, there was something about the co- the the kind of the comedy rammed up against the tragedy of yeah. that era. In I mean, I think it was more or less Colombia. I've been lucky to travel That's Colombia, right. and it yeah. seemed like it was very much based on Colombia. And I just thought such an excellent writer. And I felt also that. Oh, sorry. I felt also that, um, I don't know how to explain it. It was very affecting for me, actually. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Um, I fell madly in love. I read them out of order as well. Oh, I did read, you? I, re- I didn't realize they were a trilogy. So I read Senior Vivo and the Coca Lord first mm. and fell head over heels madly in love with Dionoso. <laughs> oh my God. I couldn't breathe. I just, yeah, he's I, so cool. He is so and I decided cool. I'm going to name my first son Dio. Oh. Um, and, but then I was like, oh my God, it's a trilogy. So then I went and read um, The War on Downey Manuals and other parts. Yeah. And w- became even more obsessed. So then I read Senor Vivo and the Coke Lord again. Oh, wow. In order. And then I read The Troublesome Offspring of Cardinal Guzman. Senor Vivo and the Coke Lord was by far my favorite. And I, I actually found it to be the most affecting. It was, it was, I had to put it down a couple of times because there was, you know, it was about cartels, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and cocaine and, um, and also like love and all these beautiful yeah. things. But there was a couple of times where I really had to put it down and, you know, every now and again, you you read something or you you see something, and you're just kind of completely. And it can be fictitious, but you're just completely shocked by the occasional depravity of humankind, right? Yeah, and I think all all together, right? My favorite aspect besides Dio is the jaguars who yeah. eat chocolate. Yeah, the kind of magic and they realism. Lay on you. Yeah, yeah, totally. Beautiful. And I'm it's obsessed. So with, it's my favorite genre, magical realism. Yeah. And I just felt if I could live in that world whereby the spiritual and the numinous is... Coexisted. Yeah, it it coexists alongside what can ultimately be the depravity of reality. Did you not find as well, I've always really um, uh, related to um, uh, Latin American cultures, and I've been really lucky to Mm. have traveled a lot in that region because I was always kind of really taken by it as a young person, so I really prioritize when I when I was saving money and I knew that I wanted to see a bit more of the world I really prioritize Latin America I'm lucky to have seen a lot of it um and I was always fascinated by like the idea of mestizo and like mixed people just being a fundamental do you remember when I I recently went to Colombia I'm not sure if you saw this I tweeted about it but um I I actually was so struck by how um people celebrated mixed raceness in a way which wasn't um Fetishizing. Were they celebrating your mixed raceness or were they celebrating the color of your skin? 
No, they were celebrating mes- the idea of being mestizo because right. the majority of people are mestizo, right? So the vast majority of the population is mixed. Right. So they would look at you and just see, they were like, oh, that you you're one mestizo. of us. Yeah. Right. And I've never felt that sense of belonging in my entire life, right? Because I'm sure like you, I navigate different spaces and sometimes I'm in white spaces and I'm like, oh, not really. <laughs> and I, or I'm in like brown spaces or black spaces and I'm like, oh, you know, even here, like sometimes people are like, oh, you light skin. Do you know what I mean? Um, and so to be in a, although we didn't share a, a, a culture or a language for there to be this kind of widespread acceptance of mixed race people. I mean, let's or not even an, an assumption of belonging. Yeah, so exactly. that kind of the first the first response is that guy belongs, yeah. not that guy's other. Yeah, and there which was must a, be so such a relief. There was a song on the radio. I, I, I speak a little bit of Spanish. And there's a song on the radio, and it said something like, um, "It was like piel morena lo que necesita." It was like, um, like brown skin, like what you need, like mm. what you, and, and I was like, when do we get that? You know what? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. when do we get that kind of um, organic, just sort of incidental celebration of, of brown bodies in our culture and in our in our country? We we do get it, but it's not as incidental. I find it's often a bit more. Um, I don't know. I don't come across it unless I'm looking for it. Sometimes. Yeah, it's not a celebration. No, and it's not celebrated by everyone. Mm. It's celebrated often by us, but. Anyway, I loved those books so much. Thank you so much. I need to give them back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Please, thank you. (laughs) Like, I've been crying every night. I don't lend out books either. We had had like two bottles of wine. Yeah, (laughs) and I was like, take all three of them. (laughs) No, I've still got all of them. I mean, one of them is slightly falling apart, but it was. I think it was falling apart when I gave it to you. Yeah, yeah. I will give them. That's how often I've read it. Brought them with me. That's okay. I will give them back to you. Anyway, Um, we're talking about. So we're having. Chardonnay, we were talking about what? Oh, working with an all-white organization. Yes, I'm going to leave course. this in as well. Just That's how <laughs> the conversation it. goes. Go for it. Um, and so we have, so it was through this conversation that we had about working outside of and within the community mm. or working with an all-white all organization to affect change. Mm. And obviously because I had just been through what I'd been through, yeah. I was like, I am never. Yeah. You took a hard line, let's <laughs> say that. <laughs> I was like, I'm never working with white people again. Yeah. I hate white, all white yeah. people. No, and, that, and you know what? And that's okay. Like, you were, you were feeling it, and that's fine. Yeah. Um, I don't but feel it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think at that time, I was trying to convince you that it was a waste of time. Yeah. And now I don't feel that way. Yeah, and I think I remember saying to you, and uh, you know, I think we agreed on this point, actually. I think we had one of those conversations where you start off disagreeing and then you end agreeing, but you feel like you're still disagreeing. Yeah, but we were you actually to, agreeing. Yeah, yeah because you know. <laughs> um, But I, I think that, you know, I'm a big, uh, and I have always been actually a big supporter of, of things like Black Pride. Mm. I think Black Pride needs to exist. I'm happy that it exists. I think it's one of the most wonderful things we have in this country to celebrate a particular community, right? Which is obviously an, an intersection of two communities. Um, and I think that in that case, the creation of a different platform or a different event was the perfect thing to do. It was needed. We weren't being heard, we weren't being seen, and we weren't being allowed to make decisions for uh, Pride in London. But there are certain realities of our world, and one of the realities is that you can't always... And it's not always strategically the right thing to do, create a new platform or create a new organization because there are some platforms or organizations which um, will always exist and will continue to coexist. And the one that I always come to is government. You know, we can't create a government which um, is solely focused on our views. It's not going to work. The government is the government. And so there has to be people who go inside the system and try and, you know, fuck it up a little bit, right? And try and... um, turn some heads and get some things done. And I think that um, so often people are quick to criticize those people as selling out. And I completely understand why. Because, you know, um, sometimes it feels like you're dancing with the devil a little bit. Well, and also because the people, there's also different motivations for moving within those spaces. Of course. So not all people of color go into governmental roles to fuck shit up. No, of course. They go into... uh, assimilate as best they can, which often means adopting the masses tools, which we know will never dismantle the masses house. Sure. And also it's worth saying as well, as we were talking about and touched on previously, it's not necessarily even their responsibility to do so. If a person of color wants to go and work in a government organization, they shouldn't feel responsible for having to to fuck shit up and turn heads. Yes, they ought to be able to exist Freely in their Josh is, make, Josh is making a very uncomfortable face right now as he's collecting his thoughts. <laughs> because there has to be space for everybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> see, I got you on that one. I got yeah, you bad. <laughs> I, I do also think that, 
Yes. Yeah. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I think that I think what I think the frustration I find sometimes is that there has always been two forms of activism. Sorry, actually, this is what I mean to say. Go. Is if you move into public office, I think that your role then changes. You know, government affects public life, mm. the life that we live on the streets. Mm. It codifies in law violence. Mm. And so in that respect, when you then step forward above the parapet, I do then think your responsibility to mm. the community from which you originate should change. And it should be... And I think that sometimes people forget that. Because not only because it doesn't come with a... I'm just doing this for me. I, I want to mm. live, you know, I, I want to do, I don't have a responsibility. I shouldn't have to have a responsibility to every single black person on mm. earth, which I do agree with. But I do also think that there has to be some sort of movement in your politics if the institutions in which you work are directly harmful to the communities from which you originate. Sure. Yeah. Which I guess is a political ideology and people don't have to follow that. Yeah, but that's I what I'm trying to say. I don't necessarily that... disagree. I think I think when we're talking about parliamentarians and politicians and people who are uh, representing visually uh, and in their and in their politics, um, I entirely agree. I think it's a real shame if you're a black lesbian going into office and you don't talk about the issues that affect you personally. I think often um I've been disappointed to see um, diplomats and parliamentarians who have a public profile not talk about um, their issues mm -hmm. um, and and their character and their um, life experience. I think I think I, I also I think when it comes to the civil service, it's really difficult because the civil service is enormous and the kind of roles that people do might, might not necessarily life. lend yeah. them to um, being able to affect meaningful or substantive change. But I know I, I do think that is a kind of political position, but I don't disagree with it. And I think if were I to be working in government, I think that I would be wanting to uh, ensure that I was bringing my whole self to work and bringing the issues that I care about to work. But I don't, you know, I think it does come down to individual experiences and we can't necessarily ask of people to do that if if they don't feel comfortable yet or if that's not within their nature not everyone is so mm. um, outwardly and explicitly political in their nature even mm. so um i think we, we i kind of mostly agree i yeah. think that there's always, there'll always be exceptions for people who won't who won't who would just it's not in their nature to kind of shake the house or whatever the expression <laughs> shake the bow what's the expression rock the bow Broke, yeah. <laughs> shake the house <laughs> but you can tell that i'm sleep deprived yeah. um yeah, let's shake the house. Um, shake the house, bud. <laughs> um, so, so if anyone follows you on social media, yeah, I think they've seen your star rise over the last year. That's very kind of you to say, Josh. Yeah, it's, it is rising. You are a bright, shining star. Thank you. And I think that's no, in no small part because of your openness around mental health. Mm. And that isn't a question, but it's a place to position ourselves for conversation. Yeah, so I have a lot to say on this topic. I think that I have been very open when it comes to my mental health, and I've always felt very strongly that that was an important thing to do. I think for the LGBT community, um, I do think mental health uh, is one of the crises that we're going through as a community. And I sometimes feel frustrated that we don't speak about it in the same way that we speak about kind of other health uh, related issues or outcomes. We talk a lot about sexual health, and I think that comes down to the HIV AIDS crisis and the fallout of that. And I think that all of the work that's being done around sexual health is extremely important. I have many friends, as you know, who work in that sphere, and I feel incredibly proud that not only have we gotten to a point where we have prep and we're talking about it and we're actively encouraging people to take um, more responsibility for their for their sexual health, but we're also talking about things like black men who have sex with men uh, or Asians men who have sex with men mm. or trans people and their experiences of HIV and how they can protect themselves and look after themselves. Um, so I think that's really important, but I also find that we don't give as much time or space to talk about mental health, and mental health is also something which disproportionately affects the LGBT community and then even... Uh, and affects even more so LGBT people of color. Mm. One of the reasons that I'm so uh, open about my mental health, it's not, I often get people who get in contact with me because they think that I'm um, crying out for help. And I really appreciate those people <laughs> right. because I think it's a really lovely thing to do to reach out to someone and ask them if they're okay. But I, I think one of the reasons that I'm so forthright is because I'm extremely aware of the fact that I think most of us, and I'm sure you relate to this, have really dark times. We are people who are, um, navigating trauma 
And I think if you're, if you're a LGBT person of color, that trauma is compounded and there are less um, facilities or resources for you to try and deal with that. And so I can't necessarily, um, I don't have a lot of money. I can't, uh, at, at, at currently I can't create services to help people, uh, LGBT people of color. That's something that I really want to do and I'm currently looking into at the moment. Um, but one of the things that I can do is I can, I can speak up and I can tell you all when I'm having a shitty day and I can tell you all how I'm getting through it. Um, and I found that being open about that aspect of my life, you know, I, we live in this world, in this kind of curated social media world, and we all play this game where we, we prioritize the good parts of our life. And I understand it. In a way, it's kind of normal social dynamics. You want to you put, uh, put an emphasis on the good things, and you want to kind of scurry or hide away the bad things. But in doing so, I think we're starting to depict um, uh, profiles of each other which aren't correct. And so when we actually suffer and when we are going through our trauma, which as LGBT people or LGBT people of color, we go through a lot, we don't have examples of other people going through the same thing and we feel alone. And I have felt devastatingly alone at many points in my life and I'm sure you have too, right? Um, and I continue to talk so openly and campaign and write and lobby on this issue because I just want us to stop killing ourselves. I have friends who have passed away. I have people in my life that I didn't even know very well who've, who've killed themselves. And um, I, I don't think that we as a community are giving enough time and space to talk about this. It, every time I talk about this, I feel like my heart is broken. Mm. I feel like my heart is broken because there are, there are young LGBT people of color right now who are considering killing themselves. And I think that those of us who have managed to come into our adulthood and obviously still um, unraveling a lot of a lot of our stuff. But those of us who are in positions of privilege where we can talk publicly or we might have influence, I think that um, uh, I don't necessarily think it's a responsibility, but I think that we should be putting more time and effort towards. There's an opportunity. There's an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't feel like at the moment that opportunity is being grasped in the way that it could be. Um, and all I want to do is try and ensure that we are um, helping the most vulnerable and the most marginalized um, and all of the communities who are the most vulnerable and who are the most marginalized and who deal with the most bullshit um, are those who are on the intersection of minoritized identities of which you and I are one, Yeah, right? It, it helps me to, to read what you write about your mental health because I often feel quite muzzled, mm. you know, as someone who um, fucked up so publicly. Mm. I feel like there's a lot that I'm no longer allowed to say, or mm -hmm. not necessarily say, but to express. And so- I can imagine that would be really difficult. Yeah, so I'm, I'm always looking for people who are saying what I need to say, because mm. it's weirdly comforting mm. to know mm. that it's getting out there, because I too want to share, mm. um, but don't always feel well-placed to do so. Yeah, I think what I would say as well is, it's not in everyone's nature to be so public and so open mm. about things that that are uncomfortable. I mean, mental health is uncomfortable. We always say, oh, you know, why can't we treat it like physical health? I don't think we can treat it like physical health. Yeah, it's and it's extremely a, it feels personal. like a chink in the armor. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And for those of us for whom the edifice has become so important mm. um, and is really hard, it's really hard then to break through and to show someone hard. and to say, actually, you know, um, I'm struggling right yeah. now. Yeah, and it's worth saying that I struggle with that too. Mm. You know, I... I'm just um, lucky enough to be extremely practiced. And I still, when I'm going through a tough time, I still struggle with the idea of sharing it with, with, with the public or sharing it with people because I think, right. you know, what will my uh, family think? What will my employers think? What will this, that, and the other think? And also when you're in a super bad state of mind, you're not always rationalizing everything, right? You're usually extremely yeah. emotional. Yeah. So you don't even <laughs> always know whether you're making the right decision in that moment anyway. Yeah. Um, but I do think that if you feel comfortable in doing so, I found that um, we can we can take something which I think has a lot of negative impact on us as a community, which is social media, 
um, and we can turn it around and use it for good. Yeah. And that's sort of, I think, partially why I feel so passionately about being so open about my mental health. Um, is that I'm taking something which I think could negatively affect me and has negatively affected me and negatively affects a lot of queer people and queer people of color. Um, and I'm using it to to share and to be open and to try and make space for other people to share and to be open. And I do have a lot of people who write to me um, talking about their hard times and I do my absolute best to to respond and to listen and to be, I mean, I can't, you know, it's uh, obviously I have a job and I have a life, but <laughs> I do try really, really hard to to be there for those people because I think that, you know, um, there is a community online of people who, who will care. You know, they will care if you're having a hard time, mm. even if they don't know you, mm. because on some fundamental level, they understand what you're going through on some fundamental level totally. because they share a part of your identity or they share multiple parts of your identity. Um, so I think we're getting there, and I feel really positive about about um, about where we're going. You know, we have the government has an LGBT um, health advisor now, and I uh, I'm really passionate about trying to ensure that um, mental health is on their radar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's I think I think also the charity Mind is starting to pick up on this that that minoritized and marginalized communities are having a really tough time. Uh, and yeah, I think they're I slowly t- starting to sigh because <laughs> LGBT people are also black and brown. Yeah, which of these course. People tend to always forget. Of course, but I think you know there's space for us to remind them, and there's space for us to say, "Hey, we're here too," mm. and actually, we're suffering the most. Mm. Um, and I think that also there's also a moment here to to um, ask for and perhaps even demand allyship. You know, I think that. Um, you know, uh, let's let's just say gay white men who who are the most visible in our community um, and who probably have the most privilege in our community. Uh, there is space for them to both um, uh, look after themselves and make sure that they are being catered for, um, as well as point to those of us who who might be struggling a little bit more in terms of um, at least statistically in terms of juggling our, our multiple identities and. Um, dealing with more discrimination from more angles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, I'm not. I just have nothing nice to say. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should express it. You should express it. Yeah. Mm. No. Well, it's just that I feel like when you talk about white gay men, mm. you might believe in them. <laughs> I do believe in them. No, I don't. Not, not for, for the most part, I don't. No, I... Because I... I think if... Maybe a new generation mm. of white gay men, but I think if you if you go online, if you take a cursory look at history, yeah, um, they have yet really en masse to rise up and do what's right. Yeah, and I mean the 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 flag is the rainbow flag, and oh, the addition yeah. of the black and brown stripes is a really perfect example. That's been my entire life the last two weeks. Yeah, yeah, I'm and I don't want to go into it here because no, you know, busy being like n- listeners know the com- that conversation. Yeah. Um, I do want to ask you two more questions. Go. What would you tell a younger Alex? Oh, what a great question. All right, here come the tears. I'm just kidding. This is very RuPaul's <laughs> Drag Race. Here. Are you going to show a photo of me and say, what would you tell young Alex? And then no, we're going to No, I would give you cry. some pills, though, but I forgot them at home. <laughs> I'm like, here, take this prep. <laughs> Taking sexual health seriously, guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> what would I say to younger Alex? Gosh, you know what, Josh? That is a really good question, and there's not a perfect answer. You know what I mean? Well, the per- the perfect answer is the answer that you would tell yourself. I think I would just. I think I would say. I think. The, let me just preface this by saying I think it's so hard to turn back and and give advice to. I think the reason that I've gotten to where I am is because I've been through the hardships that I've been through, and I don't think that any. Uh, kind words or wise words from an older me at the time would have made the experience any more difficult, any less difficult. Yeah. I think it would have always been as traumatic and difficult and and hard and also beautiful and wonderful as it's always been. And I don't know that looking back, I would um, have been able to change any of the things, any of my behaviors or any of the things that happened to me with some words. But probably what I would say is try and prioritize loving yourself. Um, because I think that the only reason that I've been able to do so much of what I've been doing recently in terms of my videos and in terms of, you know, this new era of my life where I'm being um, radically open about my mental health is that I've started learning to love myself 
And I think as queer people, we don't we don't get the tools to do that, particularly queer people of color. And I'm very, very slowly building up this sense of like, wait a second, I'm pretty shit hard. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I've got some really great things to give the world in many different ways. And um, that might sound a little bit self-important and a little bit no, obnoxious, but I think that it's actually, yeah, I was going to say That's that beautiful. exact thing. I think that it's beautiful. I think... Um, the part people in the world who are told that who they are is wrong, um, turning that around and saying, you know what, no, who I am is right, and here are the ten reasons why, is is radical and important. And I think that I'm on that journey, and I'm I'm really getting there. And I actually am really proud of myself because I don't think that uh, it's easy. And I'm sure you agree. Mm, yeah, totally. And I still like. Let's just also say. Let's just caveat this by saying I still. You know, it's not like I'm walking around being like, I'm the best. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I've yeah, made it. Yeah, <laughs> I made it. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, actually, right after this, I'm going to have a, a I'm meeting fine. with my I'm agent. 100% fine. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is fine. Whilst the country <laughs> like collapses around yeah. us. No, I, I, I also want to make this really clear because I think a lot of the time when we're talking about mental health in particular, we we kind of treat it as like, oh, I was, I was broken and now I'm fixed. That's right. And that's not the case. You know this, I know this. Mm. And most people who struggle with mental health know this. It's a constant journey. And I'm constantly relapsing and I'm constantly reaching out to my friends for help. But in that process, incrementally, I'm learning how to do it better. And I'm learning to internalize more good stuff about myself so that when I do have that little relapse or when I do have something which, you know, triggers me or whatever, um, I bounce back a little bit better. Mm. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Thanks. (laughs) And to close, you ask all of my guests the same question. Oh, I think I know what this is, yeah. What do you hope for? (sighs) I think I want to live in a world where queer people, and particularly queer people of color, are allowed to thrive. I think we're still, we're getting there and we are creating spaces to be ourselves and be authentic and live our truth. And it's so exciting. But the fact of the matter is that we are in uh, an extremely tolerant uh, metropolitan uh, part of the world. And there are so many parts of the world where people don't have that privilege and queer people and particularly queer people of color, as you know, are still fighting um, extremely hard for their rights. And I'm really lucky to work for an organization um, and with activists who are doing this. And I know firsthand that it's not easy. Mm. And so what I hope for is a world in which queer people, irrespective of where they're born and where they happen to live and the language that they grow up in and the culture that they grow up in, um, are allowed to thrive in a given space to be themselves. And I honestly think, and this is maybe gonna sound a little bit silly, I honestly think that queer people change the world. I think we've always been changing the world. We're changing the world right now, and we're gonna continue to change the world. So as far as I'm concerned, the more queer people who are allowed to be themselves 100%, the world's gonna change, and it's gonna change in a good way. So that's what I'm hoping for. And I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen, Josh. And I think you're going to be a big part of it. I think you're going to be a big part of it. Oh, you, no, you we'll hang up. Stop it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And we're going to go, <laughs> and, get, awesome. like, we're gonna go and get coffees after this and hold hands. So it's going to be great. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for being here. Thank I, you. I appreciate you um, I'm so glad we've done here. this. I don't right. want it to end ever. I know. I want to keep going. <laughs> Alexander Leon is an activist, writer, and content creator, and you can find links to his work in our show notes. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. Remember this, your support doesn't cost any money. Retweets, shares, ratings, and reviews all help, so please keep the support coming. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. Ashe. Ashe.